you keep that uh, chapter of Matthew's Gospel uh, open or accessible, uh, that would be very helpful. There's also a, a handout uh, full of all sorts of interesting diagrams and things. We'll come to those later. Uh, you might find that helpful. Use it as you will. But let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we've heard already this morning uh, what a, a wonderful and gracious thing it is for you to speak to us. What a relational thing it is for you to speak to us. And uh, we pray that you would be continuing to, do, to be doing just that in this session. As we engage uh, with this uh, passage of the Bible, uh, but much more significantly, engage with you through it. So we pray for your help in that that you would open eyes, give us ears to hear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authorities in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Now, uh, some of you will have heard those words or looked at those words on the, on the screen and uh, instantly nodded with approval and uh, thought to yourselves, ah, yes, Article 20 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England. The Bible is God's word written. And uh, even if you are perhaps of an older generation but not an Anglican, uh, you would have heard that quotation and felt the, the warmth flooding through you, much as you might feel the warmth flooding through you from a bowl of steaming hot leek and potato soup after a windy walk on Stanage Edge. I try to imagine myself, though, in a, maybe 30 or 40 years' time, if God allows me that long. And I wonder if remembering these truths about God's word, you know, the, this is God's word written, precious as they are, I wonder if those things are going to be enough when in my 80s, say, then I will have witnessed decades and decades of people, sometimes very clever people, dismissing and mocking the Bible. Now, we've all met such people, of course, it's just that the older folk among us have met very much more of them. And that kind of continuous encounter must, I suspect, take its toll over time. And I do wonder about myself in the future, when my, my faith is put under pressure in the future, as it undoubtedly would be, uh, will all those negative thoughts that come in from those kind of witnesses start to stick? Will I then have uh, the, uh, the passion that I need to pass on a passion for the Bible uh, to the next generation? Of course, let's face it, the next generation is a bit of a worry, isn't it? I'm thinking perhaps of someone who's never even heard of the 39 articles of the Church of England or anything like them. They've never heard of Simeon or, or, or Spurgeon or maybe even John Stott. They've heard perhaps some good sermons on the Bible. I've enjoyed them. Uh, if that's you, perhaps that, that's why you're here. Uh, but when you have grappled with the Bible uh, with others in small groups or when you've tried to engage with the Bible on your own, you've found it very difficult and understandably so. The Bible is hard, hard to read. Uh, it's a long and complicated book, and it often feels like it's written by people and for people 
who are very foreign and distant to our own situation and experience. Uh, We can open it up, and I'm sure we've all had this experience, and instantly feel tired and weary. And when that happens, it is tempting to start to look around for something just a little bit easier, isn't it? After all, so many people seem to have decided that in the Christian life that it's okay to ease off when it comes to the Bible. Indeed, many people who would call themselves genuinely evangelical, some of them who who genuinely seem to, to love Jesus. So you can go to other churches where the Bible is mentioned, uh, even where the Bible is read, even where the Bible is preached on, but where it's all just so much less intense and demanding. It's a good question. If you're invited to, to, to swap all this hard work in the Bible for that, for something else, would you say yes to that invitation? But I have a, an alternative invitation to offer you over these two days. It is, I hope you'll see, a superior invitation. It's an invitation to an event which is nothing less than world-changing. But I also need to warn you as I do that, unlike the other invitation, participating in this event is not a low-cost option. Like Churchill, in a way, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears and sweat but I want to persuade you that it's worth it the event I'm talking about is a language event it's the event that we started talking about in the last session the event between God and the world in which God speaks and the world changes I want to suggest to you that the solution to the fading passion that we may have that that, that may come with age Uh, And the undeveloped passion of youth, on the other hand, uh, the solution to to both those problems is the same. It's to get on the inside of this language event. It's to participate fully in what God is doing in the world through his word. So let me state up front uh, what the purpose of these talks is going to be. The purpose of these talks is uh, going to be threefold. It's it's going to be that we will be motivated and equipped for mission. And I'll explain in a moment that I'm thinking of that as as discipleship and disciple-making. Equipped for that, motivated for that, by the uncovering of what God is doing in the world through his words. The uncovering of the, the, the language event that I talked about a moment ago. Such that, such that we are moved to participate all the more fully in that event. So that's our aim. And our method is going to be to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I want to persuade you in a a moment that Matthew's Gospel is deeply concerned with motivating and equipping people for mission, for discipleship and disciple-making. And then we're going to uh, go on to look at one of the major sections of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel intended to equip his disciples for mission. Uh, Chapter 13 of the Gospel, the, the chapter of parables. This is where we're going to have, if we have ears to hear, that is. This is where we're going to have what God is doing in the world, through his world, uncovered for us. And seeing that more clearly will move us to get more involved in what he's doing. Now, that Matthew is deeply concerned with motivating and equipping people for mission is something that we could spend many hours on, uh, going through the gospel in, in some detail. Uh, but we don't have many hours, 
Uh, so I'm hoping to show you that this is true from the very last verses of the gospel, uh, the so-called Great Commission. Uh, so here, up on the screen, is a, a translation of the last five verses of the gospel. You might like to, if you keep a finger in Matthew 13, like, like to flick it to this in your Bibles as well. This is how I've translated it. The eleven disciples travelled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped. So that is, they, they gave him due reverence, uh, the reverence due to God, uh, perhaps by prostrating themselves before him. They worshipped, but they doubted. Then Jesus came near them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now you can see first what I mean here by mission. I mean the task that's there in verses 19 and 20 of of making disciples, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that has two parts to it here. There's baptizing people, that's incorporating them into what God is doing in the world, in Jesus, and then teaching them. You can also see here that Jesus is concerned with the motivation for mission. And you can see that at the end of verse 17. There is a problem in these disciples of doubt. Either some of them doubt, or as I've translated it here, all of them doubt. It's a very striking verse, isn't it? They worshipped, but they doubted. Um, how, you know, that sums us up quite a lot of the time, doesn't it? And indeed, the problem of doubt, or, or the problem of little faith, has been plaguing the disciples throughout the gospel so far. And it's only here, really, that it's finally dealt with. And it's dealt with in two ways. First, Jesus declares that what he came to do has been done. He came to bring a forgiveness of sins that would reunite heaven and earth. And his efforts in doing that as a servant of the Lord have been vindicated, as he puts it here, As a result of that, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But not only is is Jesus Christ trustworthy um, in a new and very wonderful way, he will also, at the end of verse 20, be with them to the end of the age. Okay, So we've got a declaration of authority, we've got the promise to be with them, and those two things allow Jesus to incorporate the disciples into a task that so far, really, only he has been involved in. It's a task that so far they have shown pretty much zero aptitude for. It's a task that God's people in history have failed at lamentably in the past. And that's the task of taking light to the world, a task which is put here as making disciples of all nations. That thing that once was impossible now is made possible in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is concerned to equip the disciples for this task is obvious even here. Uh, but you can also see that this is not exhausted by this, these verses. To be equipped for mission be, means being able to teach what Jesus has taught them. So there's a very interesting cycle here. So we've got disciples, verse 16, uh, who are given the task of making disciples, verse 19. 
which includes teaching what they have been commanded as disciples. That's verse 20. Which, of course, culminates in this command in the gospel, uh, thus making further disciples. And so it goes on in a virtuous cycle to the end of the age. But, of course, it's not just this command which matters. Look at verse 20 again. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. All of Jesus' teaching matters for this task. And not least, the, the, the five large blocks of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. And it's essential, I think, to read those great speeches in the Gospel in the light of this great commission, these final verses of the Gospel. So the first speech, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, sets the foundations for mission. The second in chapter 10 addresses the experience of mission. But it's not till we get to the third of those great speeches, chapter 13 of the Gospel, that we have the big picture of what that mission is all about uncovered for us. And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time in these talks. In Matthew chapter 13, what God is doing in the world through his word uncovered. Now let me say we have three preliminary things about this chapter of the Gospel. First of all, it's the context of this chapter that, which tells us why what God is doing needs to be uncovered for the disciples. Because the context of this chapter highlights the experience, the experience of mission is often a mixed one with many, many disappointments. So back in chapter 10, as he sent them out with a message of the kingdom, Jesus warned the twelve that they would, should expect negative responses. Indeed, since then, that's been his own experience. Even John the Baptist has expressed doubts. That was in chapter 11. In many ways, the message of the kingdom seems to have failed. The generation as a whole has not grasped the nearness of the kingdom of the heavens, and the Pharisees and others have been downright hostile towards it. What's more, topping and tailing Matthew chapter 13, there are stories which highlight the depth of the problem. And the first of those, this is chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. Even Jesus' blood relatives are shown to be unresponsive. In the second, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus' hometown is again profoundly unresponsive. So this is the issue, and this is the context into which Jesus is speaking in this chapter. Now, why do negative responses lead us to doubt the truth of the gospel message? Well, I guess they make us wonder whether we have been fools. So when we see vast numbers going against what we have thought, we naturally wonder whether we've just made a mistake on this. I suppose we often process other people's responses this way. For example, one of my favorite uh, websites is a, a film website called Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know if you've come across this website. It, it works not by uh, reviewing films itself, uh, but taking the reviews that others have given. It surveys all the, rev- the reviews that have been made uh, on a particular film, and it then gives, us the pro- gives you the proportion of positive responses to the film. So if a film gets, say, 91%, uh, you can be reasonably confident um, that it will be good. Usually, that is. But I wonder, how would the message of the kingdom in first century Galilee fare under that same method? What proportion of responses have been positive 
uh, to Jesus' message. 2%, 1%. Hard to put a figure on it, isn't it? But it's low. It's low. And you might well be excused for feeling a little disappointed and hesitant about your commitment to the gospel with those sorts of responses, those sorts of figures. But this is a chapter that is designed to, int- to deal with those kinds of feelings. Second thing, a skim through the content of the chapter confirms that it is indeed about uncovering something that has been hidden. I just want you to notice, to begin with, for a moment, that each of the parables in this chapter involves uncovering something that's either hidden or obscured or misleading. So, for example, the seed which falls on some of the soils in the first parable is apparently, at first sight anyway, apparently productive. And it's only its its long-term future remains hidden for a while, but then it's exposed. Uh, The good seed in the parable of the weeds, which we'll look at a little later, is obscured or, or partially hidden by the weeds. The mustard seed in the next parable is in the first place, it's it's sort of hidden, and it's so so small you can barely see it. Uh, Leaven, when it's mixed with dough, is is invisible, it's indistinguishable from the dough around it. Then we get to the parables of the hidden treasure, and a pearl whose value is hidden to many. Uh, The good fish in the final parable, in some sense, hidden among the bad. But in most of the parables, what we find is that the hidden thing, or the misleading thing, is finally uncovered. The seed on unsuitable soil fails, but the seed on good soil succeeds. Uh, The wheat in the parable of the weeds is finally separated out so that you can see it clearly. Uh, We come to see what was once a mustard seed become something huge and very obvious. The tiny amount of yeast or leaven spreads through the whole batch. The treasure is uncovered. The pearl is bought and clear to see. The good fish are selected and kept. Third thing, it's the structure of the chapter and the three purpose statements which highlight what gets uncovered here. Now, we'd have to say that the structure and arrangement of this chapter is is not at all a a straightforward issue, and there have been many suggestions about how it has been structured, some of them very elaborate. Uh, but I think the one I've shown on your handout is the, has the most going for it. This divides the chapter into threes. You discover when you've been working and reading Matthew's Gospel uh, for some time that Matthew likes arranging things in groups of three. The first section of the, of the chapter is concerned with the parable of the sower or the soils, which we'll look at shortly. It's given a very prominent place here, and it seems to be the parable which underlies all of the other parables in the chapter. The second section, we've got three parables grouped together, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the yeast. And then Matthew says something about why Jesus is speaking in parables there. And then we have another private session with the disciples, and Jesus explains the parable of the weeds. In the third section, we get three more parables grouped together, hidden treasure, the pearl, and the net the parable of the net actually finishes at the end of verse 48. Then Jesus gives an explanation of that. And he finishes the parables by saying something more about what happens uh, when they're understood. So we've got this pattern uh, across the different sections of parables and then interpretation. And then something about the purpose of the parables in, in each section. And you can see how the, the arrangement highlights what you might call the three purpose statements in the chapter. 
There are three reasons given here for Jesus speaking in parables. We're going to look at each of them in turn over these three talks. The first and most obvious and explicit reason is given by Jesus himself. This is verses 10 through to 17. We're going to be looking at that shortly. The second is given in an editorial comment by Matthew. That's verses 34 and 35. And the third, right at the end, is implied in a slightly cryptic exchange between Jesus and the disciples right at the end of the chapter. And we're going to look at that tomorrow. So the remainder of this talk is going to be about the first of those purposes. Now remember that the, the, overall, the overall aim across these talks is to be encouraged in a, in a context of mixed responses, to persevere in discipleship, and to be equipped in mission uh, through the uncovering of God's purposes in the wor- world through his word. And this time that means the uncovering of God's divisive purpose. And I want to show you that from the first and perhaps the most important parable in this chapter, the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower is going to show us the dividing work of the word of God in action. And it's going to show us that in more than one way. And we're going to see that by tracing step by step how Jesus' disciples are progressively divided from the rest of the crowd that Jesus has been teaching. And that seems to happen here in three stages. Jesus' disciples are separated from the crowd by being first persistent, by second being informed, and by thirdly being encouraged to be compliant. So it goes like this. We begin with a Jesus-centered persistence with the word of God, uh, leading to disciples who are informed concerning the divisive purpose of his word, and then finally compliance in their own response to what God says. Let's take that step by step. What divides a disciple of Jesus from the, from the crowd? Well, first of all, a Jesus-centered persistence with the word of God, even when it's profoundly puzzling. Verses 1 to 10 begin like this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Now, how is to understand this story that Jesus tells? Who is the farmer or the sower? Jesus doesn't say. What's the farmer doing? Is he sowing before ploughing the field or, or after? Why is he sowing apparently so carelessly? Again, Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't seem that interested in, in all those kind of agricultural details here. The emphasis is rather on the seed. And this will make most sense, I think, if we imagine this seed being spread or broadcast in huge volumes, spread generously as, a, as if there's an unlimited supply of it. I think if we were to imagine this scene being filmed, we wouldn't see very much of the farmer at all, maybe just his feet or his hands. What we would see, however, is clouds and clouds of seeds spread everywhere. But we would see other details too. There's a, there's a path. There are birds flocking to the scene, eager, eager for a quick meal. And it's a varied landscape. There's, a, there's thin, rocky ground covered with weeds, ground covered with weeds and thorns, And then there's ground that's been well tilled and clear. Some seed comes to nothing because of where it falls. It's snatched by the birds, it's scorched by the sun, or it's choked to death by thorns. 
But, says Jesus, other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, what kind of response would that story have got, I wonder? I imagine to begin with, a long, awkward silence. What is this? What is a parable anyway? I could have spent a a good ten minutes with you going through all the options that that modern scholarship has has talked about on that issue. What is a parable? It's the sort of thing that scholars love to discuss amongst themselves, although they don't come to many firm conclusions. The only thing that Jesus is saying is, this is a parable. Deal with it. He who has ears, let him hear. I guess we should find it reassuring that the disciples don't get it. They don't get the parable, and they don't get why Jesus is talking that way. Here's a crowd, a big crowd, at an evangelistic event, and he tells them a farming story. He could at least have done two ways to live with them or something. But I want you to see what they do get. And they do get something very, very important. It's there in verse 10. The disciples came to him. We might miss that little detail, but actually it's vital to understanding what's going on here. They came to him. This, first and foremost, is what distinguishes them from the rest of the crowd. This is the beginning of understanding. What they need before anything else is a a teacher. It's a teacher-disciple relationship in which understanding can grow. And once that has happened, the first thing that Jesus wants for them is to be, secondly, disciples who are informed concerning the divisive purpose of his words. It's in verses 11 to 17 that Jesus uncovers this purpose. You can see it even in verse 11. Jesus replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens has been given to you, but not to them. In other words, what we've begun to see in the disciples as they've separated from the crowd and come to Jesus, Jesus now makes explicit. His words are intended to create a division, a separation. On one side of that division, his words have begun to judge those who are, in the end, uninterested in him, uninterested in the kingdom and the purposes of God. This is how people, uh, Jesus describes them. For this people's hearts have become calloused. That is, they've become thickly covered in fat and therefore diseased and dull and insensitive. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. To those whom God is not drawing to himself through Jesus, the parables are coming across as riddles, perhaps even as, as meaningless gibberish. Now, there's, there's a famous Gary Larson cartoon, which I don't have the rights to, so I couldn't actually show you uh, the cartoon. It has two panels, and on both panels, a man is talking to a dog, and the first picture has the title, What We Say to Dogs. And the man's saying to the dogs, who's called Ginger, Okay, Ginger, I've had it. You stay out of the garbage. Understand, Ginger, stay out of the garbage, or else. The second picture has the title, title What They Hear. And there's also a speech bubble coming from the man, but this time the speech bubble has in it, Blah, blah, Ginger. Blah, 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 ginger. Blah, 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 blah. And I guess that's how parables function. 
for some people on the wrong side of that divide. Now, as it was in the day of the prophets, this is an act of judgment. Okay? We've been talking about how God's words do things. This is God judging. Now, the prophets like Isaiah in the past needed to know that because otherwise they would have uh, understandably wondered what on earth was the point of passing on this message that no one was going to hear and nobody was going to respond to. And Jesus' disciples, including us, also to need to know that that is, that is possible. No response does not mean that God's word has failed. God's word does not only call, it also hardens and judges. But on the other side of the division, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what God is doing in the hearts of the responses, uncovering what's going on in the hearts of those who do come to him. As we've already heard from verse 11, these are people who are given the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens. We're going to be thinking much more about those secrets uncovered over the next two sessions. But for the moment, just take a note of what a privilege this is. Jesus himself puts it like this, verse 17. Many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see and didn't see them, to hear the things that you hear, yet didn't hear them. But Jesus doesn't just want his disciples to be well informed. What else is going to divide them from the crowd in the end? He also wants them to be compliant, compliant in their own response to what God says. Finally, then, we come to the explanation of the parable. And verse 19 provides the key to making sense of what Jesus has said. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed in Jesus' farming story is the message or the, or the word of the kingdom. In other words, this is another picture that Jesus is painting of the divisive work of God's word. Jesus is uncovering for us an alternative and another picture, a bigger picture, broader picture, God's eye view of the division which happens when God speaks into the world. And we're going to look at this again tomorrow. But for the moment, just look at what, is, what it is now that which divides a true disciple of Jesus from the rest. And it's there in the conclusion of verse 23. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And this, of course, confirms... But in the end, there is success, even, even if it doesn't look that way. Finally, after ages and ages of unresponsiveness in the history of Israel, we do get a result. In amongst this continuing unresponsiveness, there's something good going on. There's seed which is productive. So this is what we've seen. The true disciple of Jesus first comes to Jesus for understanding. The true disciple, second, is the one who's graciously given the secrets of the kingdom. But finally, the true disciple hears, understands, and is fruitful. And as we'll tell you more about tomorrow, we need to keep all of those three things together. The hearing, the understanding, and the fruitfulness. It's time, I think, to uh, go and interview some people uh, from the crowd 
John uh, from the Decapolis has uh, heard Jesus one Saturday morning on Galilee Premier Radio. And he's said to his mates, this guy's great. And uh, here he is by the lake. He's brought all his family along to hear Jesus live. They've got front row tickets. They're right on the shoreline. But he's been listening to all this farming stuff and he's been shaking his head. At the end, he says, wasting my time. And there's much cursing and swearing as he says to his brood, come on, let's go home. For John, a knowledge of the kingdom has been held back or taken away. He has seen, but he hasn't really seen. He has heard, but he hasn't really heard. But Elizabeth from Bethsaida has been listening carefully. She doesn't really understand yet, but she can sense that something important is happening. So she does what the disciples do in verse 10. She comes to Jesus. She comes closer to Jesus to find out more. In fact, we might say that if she carries on like this, if she perseveres in this, if she doesn't let go of this, then she's going to be like the fourth kind of soil in the parable. To Elizabeth are given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Like the disciples in verse 17, she can see what the prophets long to see. She can hear what the prophets long to hear. And in due course, she will bear fruit. Some have the little they had taken away. Some have what they had multiplied wonderfully. But I want to make it very clear as we finish this session that what is true of the parables is true more generally. The device, this divisive purpose is not just a feature of Jesus speaking in parables, although we might say that it's exaggerated or highlighted in the parables. It's much wider phenomenon of the word of God. Now, we've seen this already in the parable here. It's the word of the kingdom which divides. Uh, it's not speaking in parables per se. In other words, we can use this parable to give us a, a general model or understanding of what happens when God speaks to the world. Uh, when he speaks to the world through the books of the Bible, for example. After all, it's not just the parables in the Bible which cause us to tear our hair out trying to understand what's going on. I can remember very vividly having, uh, having to teach on the, on the, you might know, the Hagar and Sarah passage in Galatians chapter 4 uh, last year. And, and you look at passages like that and you just think, what is going on here? So that what we're seeing with the parables here is, is not, it's not just a feature of parables, it's a much wider phenomenon. So as we approach a given book of the Bible, I think we do need to have in mind something like the framework that I sketched on the handout. Now I'm not notorious for drawing complicated diagrams. If you don't like diagrams, just ignore this, just listen to what I'm going to say. If you do like diagrams, then that's great. But this is the, the kind of framework that I think we need to have in mind. A model for thinking about the different responses uh, to the word of God and where we fit on it. And you can see that it's based upon the parable of the sower. So there will be around us readers of the Bible, much like the seed on the path, who barely engage at all, and uh, who just mock and dismiss. There will be all around us uh, readers like the seed on rocky places or among thorns, who, uh, who get much further than that. They reach a measure of what I've called here a communicative alignment with what God is saying. Uh, they perhaps know something of what God requires of them 
uh, the call that he is making to them in the gospel. To an extent, they hear and understand the call, uh, but in the end, whether it be fear, pride, complacency, there's something that's holding them back. But then, then there are readers, and this is where we're wanting to be, of course, like the seed on good soil. With persistence and a prayerful dependence upon Jesus, their teacher, they have understood the call, and by the grace of God, they have been moved to comply with it. For such people, understanding this framework will help them not to be discouraged by all those other responses around them. The noise of the dismissive or the the lazy or the half-hearted responses as they engage with the Lord through the word will fade into the background as our master's voice grows ever clearer and louder. Ever more, in fact, aligning us to his glorious plans and purposes. Uh, So suppose I'm uh, trying to engage in biblical studies at an academic level. This is me a few years ago. Suppose I'm trying to do that in this country. And I say, as I do so, that I want to serve God's people. That's my reason for doing this. Uh, But what I say is met with a knowing smile and barely disguised derision. Or suppose I'm an Anglican clergyman in a deanery chapter meeting. I'm perhaps one of a minority of people in in that meeting who believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. An even smaller minority who think that it matters Or suppose I'm just any old disciple of Jesus in 2011 in this country. What proportion of responses to the gospel around me are positive, lasting responses? Uh, Look at some uh, work on this. Some agencies reckon that it's 8%. You look in Operation World, that's the figure they'll give. I doubt, actually, that it's anywhere near that figure. Certainly nowhere near that figure in Sheffield. But now, although those things sadden me, and they should sadden me, they do not make me waver. Why not? Well, because I, along with Jesus' other disciples, have been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I have inside information. We know something, I think, about the difference that inside information can make. So the share trader with inside information bets against the market. The supporter who's seen the English rugby team off the pitch doesn't go to bother to watch them on it. If I alone know where the fire exits in a building are, I don't follow the crowd when the alarm goes off. Not at all. In fact, I do my level best to get them to follow me. Likewise in the Christian life. Inside information makes all the difference. Even in these parts of Matthew chapter 13, we've been shown something that makes all the difference. We've been shown a glimpse of what God is doing through his word in the hearts of the unresponsive, judging their hard-heartedness. We've been given a glimpse of what God is doing through his word in the hearts of the responsive, the responsive that's showing them things that the prophets long to see. We've even been given this this wonderful God's eye view of the whole process as he broadcasts his word liberally, fully knowing that some will fall on stony ground, but that some will take root and prosper. 
In other words, we began to understand the divisive, separating purpose of God's word. So we're not surprised when we see that purpose expressed in practice. The disappointments may well come thick and fast, but we do not give up. On the contrary, we redouble our efforts to find that precious soil in ourselves and in others where the word may grow and prosper to the glory of God. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, many things we could thank you for from this chapter. But just to pick out the wonderful privilege it is to be the recipients of things that the prophets long to see, to hear things that they long to hear. We pray amongst the other things that we pick out from these two days that a deep sense of privilege would come from that. Help us to be deeply grateful for what you have done in us. In Jesus' name, amen.